The following resource is brought to you by Real Life Community Church in Richmond, Kentucky. We hope you're both challenged and encouraged by this message from Pastor Chris May. Take your Bibles and go with me to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 18. The Word of God says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. We are continuing in our verse-by-verse study through the book of 1 Peter, and um, there are certainly benefits to preaching in this way, verse-by-verse through any given book of the Bible. For one, we gain a better understanding of each book of the Bible when we go through the entire book. We get to hear the whole counsel of God rather than just selective text. And then we get the context of each passage, which helps with biblical interpretation. But there is a drawback to preaching in this way, and it's simply this, that the preacher does not get to skip the tough passages. Today, we have come to a text that is one of the most perplexing in the entire Bible. As a matter of fact, the great reformer Martin Luther uh, wrote this about this passage saying, quote, A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the Testament, so that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. This is Martin Luther. <laughs> I cannot understand and I cannot explain it. And there has been no one who has explained it, end quote. One commentator calculated that between these five verses that there are somewhere around 180 different exegetical theories, combinations within this passage. Needless to say, friends, I have had my work cut out for me this week. I sat Thursday, I'd been studying the passage all week. I sat Thursday in front of my computer when I would normally make my homiletical outline and I just glare just kind of stared at the page with and it stayed empty all the day and I just said Holy Spirit you're gonna have to help me on this one he has to help me on every one of them to be sure but especially this week so I am not so arrogant as to think that I'm gonna settle today's uh, centuries worth of theological debate with my interpretation of this passage so though I'm not overly confident in the individual details of what Peter is saying here. What I am confident about, what theologians do agree on, is the reason that Peter is writing this passage. Namely, 
He is encouraging Christians who are facing persecution because of their faith. This is what these first century Christians to whom Peter is writing are experiencing. They, as we've talked about, they feel like misfits. They're exiles. They're in a strange land. They're living in pagan communities and are expected to live holy lives. And they are facing persecution because of it. This is very clear when we consider the context. The preceding verses in chapter 3 we talked about last week are all about suffering for righteousness sake. We talked about what an honor it is to suffer for the name of the Lord. Then the verses following this passage, particularly chapter 4 verse 1, is all about suffering. So very simple meaning here. It is to encourage Christians who might suffer because of their faith. Now, I will do my best to interpret the details of each passage, but I'll do so without being dogmatic, all right? So I approach this with great humility and uh, ask for grace this morning as I, I preach. But I, what I really want to bring out is how each of these verses is meant to encourage us in our suffering. I don't want to miss the forest for the trees, so to speak. Now, being persecuted for being a Christian is the norm throughout the world, okay, throughout the majority of the world. We live in somewhat of a bubble here in America, don't we? The respect that we have enjoyed as Christians over the last several decades and even centuries in, in the West, Western world is actually the exception in the world now and throughout history, it's the exception. It is not the norm. And so we know this to be the case now, that times are changing even in America, aren't they, in, relations to, in relation to how Christianity is perceived. People are growing daily more and more militant against the Christian faith. So we would do well to heed Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Friends, there is coming a day, it's already happening, where we will be persecuted to some extent for our faith. You may never lose your life in this country in your lifetime for, our, for, for your faith, but you will experience increasing persecution that is owing to your faith if you're truly living as a real follower of Jesus. And this should not surprise us. Jesus made a, a kind of a sweeping statement to his disciples. It's found in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 27. He said these words, he says, You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So as we prepare to face persecution for our faith, Peter gives us here five encouraging truths to help us stand strong. And I apologize, I do not have a lot of this on the uh, the points on the screen, I did not get to make note sheets because I have been just uh, totally engaged just in the scriptures and um, worked till late last night to kind of work this out. So uh, just listen, take your own notes today, um, but I pray this is a blessing and encouragement to you. Number one, 
The first truth that is meant to encourage us in suffering is this. Christ empathizes with us in our suffering. Christ empathizes with us in our suffering. The first part of verse 18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Now, when an individual is persecuted for their faith on any level, it is easy to feel isolated, is it not? And in that particular situation, it is helpful to remember that others have suffered for their faith and right now there are others around the world suffering probably to a much greater extent for their faith. As a matter of fact, when you go through any type of pain, isn't it comforting to talk to someone who's been there? Many of you know that um, years ago when I lived in Colorado, I, um, I suffered for about three years uh, from horrendous, dark um, mental health issues. And uh, it was just a very tumultuous and dark time in my life. And um, I had to be on like six different medications or more. I had to constantly uh, frequent uh, psychologist's offices and I had to see psychiatrists. And here I was, a pastor. It was kind of humiliating for me, humbling for me. And uh, it, it was just a difficult time for me and for my family. But you know, I am grateful now, looking back upon that, that God allowed me to go through that season. And I'll tell you why. Because it has allowed me to be in a very unique position in ministry. I've been able to encourage and to help a lot of people who deal with uh, clinical depression, uh, bipolar disorder, and, and a plethora of other uh, mental health diseases. And I've been able to help them because I've been where they have been in a sense. They're encouraged because they see that God has brought me through and they're encouraged by that hope. And, and I found this, and this is a great epidemic in our world today, is it not? It's helpful to be able to reach people who are struggling with mental health issues because I have found that they're not so interested in talking to people who have all these degrees and know the science but have never been there they want to know, they want to speak to somebody who says, oh, I've been where you've been. And when we suffer as believers, we need to remember that not only have other Christians walked this road, but friends, listen, Peter tells us, he reminds us, the King of kings and the Lord of lords has also suffered. The just for the unjust. May I add that he suffered beyond what any of us will ever experience, bearing not just the physical pain of the cross, but the very wrath of the Father. So when you are treated unjustly because of your faith, remember that Christ sympathizes with you. He empathizes with you. He's been there. And there's a second truth meant to encourage us in suffering, and it is this, that Christ has taken care of our greatest problem. Christ has already taken care of our greatest problem. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. In Matthew 16, 24, we find Jesus' familiar words to anyone who would follow him. 
to anyone who would desire to follow him. Here's what he says. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, which is this instrument of pain, of torture, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The Christian life, friends, is not about comfort and luxury on this earth. It is a call to die to self. It is a call to follow Jesus and to be willing to be persecuted for His namesake. This is why Christ, as recorded in Luke 14, 25, tells us to count the cost before we follow Him. This is not easy believism. This is not raise your hand if you want to be saved and just add Jesus to your life and everything's going to be okay. No, it's a call to come and to die at the feet of Jesus, to die to self, to take up your cross and to follow Him. And someone may ask this, if being a Christian may make a person's life even more difficult, and if it may put his or her very life at risk, why in the world would anybody want to be a Christian? That's a fair question. I've had people tell, say this to me because I preach often on suffering. That's, the Christ, that's part of the Christian life. And as a pastor, my job is to help prepare you for suffering. And pastor, if you preach that, you're never going to grow a church. Nobody's going to want this message. You got to preach what these big churches are preaching. Nothing but grace, right? Nothing but luxury, nothing but comfort, nothing but healing. Don't preach suffering. Pastor John Piper answers the, this question as follows. I think this is so great. He says, the answer is that the greatest human needs are not to live, the answer is that the greatest human needs are not to live long on this earth and comfortable and be comfortable. The biggest human needs are how to have our sins forgiven and to overcome our separation from God and live with Him in happiness in His presence forever instead of living forever in misery in hell. He writes that that's 10,000 times more important than living long on the earth and being comfortable for a zillionth percentage of your existence. Think about it. Our greatest need, friends, is not physical. It's not physical comfort on this earth. It's not physical healing. It's not, uh, it's not physically having luxury, literal luxury on this earth. No, that's not what Jesus means by giving you abundant life. Our greatest need is spiritual. And our greatest problem is not the economy our greatest problem is not financial. Our greatest problem is not physical. Friends, our greatest problem is the problem of sin because sin is what separates us from our Creator. Isaiah 59.2 says this, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. That's what sin does. It separates us from a holy God. But I want you to think of the beauty of what Peter is telling us here. 
He says, number one, that Christ suffered once for our sins. Meaning this, friends, nothing else has to be done for our redemption. His work on the cross has paid my debt in full. It is finished. So our greatest problem has been dealt with. That's the encouragement. Secondly, it tells us that he was just, Christ was just, but he suffered for us the unjust. Meaning his work on the cross, as we often talk about, is substitutionary. He absorbed the wrath of God that was due to us. He took the penalty of our sin. He took it upon himself. And thirdly here, it tells us that his sacrifice has brought us safely to God in a way in which we aren't utterly consumed by the Lord's presence. Because God's justice has been satisfied through Christ's work on the cross. Our debt has been paid. Now we have been reconciled to God. So here's the point. Here's the point. How does this help us with experiencing, when we experience persecution? Here it is. Number one, it reminds us that we are not forsaken. Because when you experience persecution, you can feel forsaken by God. But when you look back to the cross, you say, oh, it, it can't possibly be that because Jesus has reconciled me to the Father. And in Christ, there is no condemnation. But secondly, it's encouraging to know that though we may suffer for a while on this earth, we may be persecuted for our faith, that we will experience all of eternity without any measure of suffering. We will experience the Lord's presence in fullness with peace and safety. And as Peter says in chapter 1, our eternal inheritance is guaranteed. And so Peter is telling us it is much better to suffer in this life now for the cause of Jesus and spend eternity in the new heavens and the new earth than it is to live in luxury and comfort on this earth and spend an eternity in hell. There's a third truth meant to encourage us in our suffering, and it is simply this, that Christ has already defeated our real adversary. Christ has already defeated our real adversary. The second part of verse 18, talking about Jesus, says that he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And then we find this obscure passage in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. What in the world is Peter talking about? No, like I'm asking because I have no... <laughs> Let's just break this down. It says he was put to death in the flesh. Peter is reminding us that Jesus physically, literally died. You might remember that the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, causing blood and water to flow out of him, which is a physiological sign that he was indeed dead. Jesus died physically, but then it says that he was made alive in the spirit. Now, in the Greek, the definite article here is omitted, suggesting that Peter is not referring to the Holy Spirit, but instead is simply stating that Jesus did not spiritually die. 
that he was, uh, he continued to exist. He never ceased to exist, though his body was put in the tomb. He died physically, but not spiritually, though he did feel forsaken by God as he bore his wrath. So the question becomes, have you ever thought about this? What did Jesus do between his death and his resurrection? How many have ever thought about this? Now, there is a lot of controversy surrounding this verse, but let me just give you what I think Peter is talking about. According to this text, before his resurrection, Christ went to a real place to make a triumphant announcement. All right? The Greek word caruso here means that Christ preached or he heralded. In the ancient world, heralds would announce some triumphant victory. They would go into cities and they would, they, they would announce a victory, a victorious battle. And John MacArthur points out here that the verb does not suggest that Jesus went to preach the gospel to the spirits in prison. Otherwise, Peter would have used the verb which means to evangelize. He doesn't use that here. Jesus went as a herald, it seems, to announce his victory to the enemy, declaring that he is indeed triumphant over sin. Now this begs the question, who did he go to? Who are these spirits in prison? Another point of controversy amongst, amongst theologians. What seems that Peter is not talking about human spirits here because the word that he uses is never used in the New Testament to speak about human beings unless there is a qualifier, such as in Hebrews 12, verse 3. So it is likely that Peter is speaking about demonic, non-human spiritual beings here. Demons, essentially, all right? Now, Ephesians 6, 12, Paul writes this, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, talking to present-day believers, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Paul is saying, listen, the battles that we're fighting are not just spiritual, are not just physical, but there is a spiritual realm that is coming against us. There are demonic forces that are coming against us, that are waging war against us. And so this tells us that there are unbound demons who are conducting evil in the world. And it does not seem that it is these unbound spirits that Peter is talking to, but he is talking about bound demons. This is who he's proclaiming victory to. Now, who in the world, what, what kind of demons are bound well, Peter tells us that these demons were particularly disobedient in the days of Noah. All right, now you may remember this story. If you go back to, to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, we find another peculiar passage there. Verse 1 says this, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. And they took as their wives as they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God, here it is, the sons of God came in to the daughters of man 
and they bore children with them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, Satan and his angels had already rebelled, right? They were kicked out of heaven. So these are the fallen angels. And there was a particular group of what we believe to be fallen angels, these demons who right before the flood overstepped their boundaries that were set by the Lord, defying God by leaving the spirit world to enter into the human realm, all right? You're not lost yet, are you? All right, stay with me. These fallen angels were drawn in a perverse way to beautiful women, and they took them for their wives, which begs the question, how can a demon married a woman? Well, there's only one way. It would be for that demon to possess or a, a, a human being, right? And so we have the first record in the Scriptures here in which we see a suggestion, at least, of demonic possession. These demons possessed men, likely, who then married women and they bore children. And though these children were human beings, you can imagine if you were raised by a demon, right? Like, you probably are pretty wicked. They had tremendous influence on them, and the wickedness on the earth reached new heights and new depths, and consequently, God sent the flood. All right? So Jesus, in between his death and his resurrection, I believe, proclaimed his triumph over Satan, death, and all of hell, watch this, to the very worst of demons, these bound demons. Well, how in the world does this encourage us in suffering? I'm glad you asked. The people who were against us, who are against us, those who persecute us are not our ultimate enemies. We fight not against flesh and blood, but against powers, against principalities. The real enemy, Peter is showing us, has already been defeated. Which means this, this is so encouraging to me, we are not fighting for victory. We are fighting from a place of victory because we're in a battle that's already been won. So regardless of whether or not that, those details are exactly right, the point is the same. Jesus is triumphant. and We're fighting from a place of victory, not for victory. There's a fourth truth meant to encourage us in suffering, and it is this. We are safe in Christ from the floodwaters of judgment. We are safe in Christ from the floodwaters of judgment. Verse 20, the second part, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Talking about Noah and his family. He goes on to say that baptism, another peculiar verse here, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me just stop right there for a minute and say that the key word in this text is not baptism, it is resurrection. Okay, it is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we get this who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers, having been subjected to him. So Peter has had a great deal to say about salvation up to this point. I mean, you go to, to chapter 1 and straight away he's talking about our salvation. 
Nowhere does he mention that baptism saves you. He just doesn't talk about it like that. And in the immediate context here, he says that Christ died for our sins. Christ brought us safely to God, saying that it is Jesus who saves us. Not water. It's Jesus. Verse 21 says that baptism corresponds to Noah and his family being brought safely through the water. So Peter sees God's saving of Noah in the flood as a model of Christ's salvation through baptism. But watch this. Peter knows that he is certain to be misunderstood. So immediately he qualifies this by saying it's not the removal of dirt that saves a person. In other words, it is not the act of getting in water that saves you. Baptism does not ultimately save you. If you're baptized and your heart has not been changed by Christ, you go down a, a dry center and come up a wet center. We've got to be careful because we can give um, men and women a, a false assurance of their salvation just because they've been baptized. That's not what Peter is saying. It's not the physical act that saves us. It is the appeal, he says, to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That would be, we believe, to be the, the conviction of sin that the Holy Spirit brings upon our hearts. He's talking about it's not the water that saves you. It is repentant faith that saves you. That's what Romans 10 talks about. It is the turning from sin and turning to Christ. As a matter of fact, some scholars believe he's not talking about water baptism at all here, that he's talking about being baptized into Christ. So water baptism at best is an evidence of salvation. It is not the means of it. An important distinction Believer's baptism is the first ordinance that God asks you to do after you're saved, after you believe upon Him. So it's not that baptism itself saves you, but I would have a hard time believing that, that someone is truly a Christian if they do not follow the Lord in believer's baptism. Because is He really Lord of your life if the very first thing He asks you to do, you don't do? When you come to Christ, when you profess him as Lord, you're saying, Jesus, I'm going to do what you say. Okay. What's Acts 2.38 say? Repent and be baptized. That's the very first thing. You believe? Repent, be baptized. So turn from your sin, be baptized. If you're truly a Christian, you will be willing to do that. But we know it's not the physical act of baptism that saves. Because Jesus said to the thief on the cross who professed faith in Jesus, today you'll be with me in paradise. He didn't say, well, you know, you, you just believed a moment too late. I don't have any water here to, to baptize you in. No, he said today. So there's a difference for somebody that cannot be baptized and somebody that is unwilling to be baptized. Baptism, here's what it does. This is the encouragement here. Baptism reminds us that we are united to Jesus and that the worst possible suffering that we could ever experience, get this, has been averted. That though we may suffer for Christ's sake on this earth, we will not suffer ever condemnation. 
We will not suffer the eternal and final wrath of God. We are saved, he says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So water baptism is a picture of these glorious truths. So when you're discouraged, when you feel condemned, you think back to your baptism. And you are reminded, oh, I've been crucified with Christ. When you are uh, tempted to get off the road marked with suffering to make your life more comfortable. You just remember, no, 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 no. My life is hidden with Christ. I am his and he is mine. And though I may suffer for a while on this earth, listen, I am in Christ. And remember Noah, he was saved from the flood waters of, jo Joan, or of, 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 of God, the flood waters of God by walking into the ark with his family. That was an act of faith. And so when we are in Christ, it's not that we're saved from the floodwaters in Noah's day. What is it? Friends, it's that we're saved from the floodwaters of judgment that are going to come in the end. God's final and eternal wrath. We are safe in Christ. So we will not be utterly condemned. So the point being, you and I, we can take anything for a season because we can know the worst suffering has been averted. Finally, verse 22, very quickly, Christ has triumphed and so will we. <laughs> Christ has triumphed and so will we. Verse 22, Jesus has gone into heaven and he is at the right hand of God with the angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the culmination of encouragement for every single believer that Christ has triumphed. All angels, all authorities, all powers have been subjected to him. Hallelujah. We've been united to him. He has, here it is. He has triumphed. So will we. Hallelujah. Our end is sure. Listen, if I'm going to go through some sort of suffering, if I'm going to go through some battle of persecution, I just want to know this, that I'm on the winning team. I want to be on the winning team. And the captain of our ship has already won the war. So every battle is ultimately insignificant because I know the final outcome. Christ has triumphed and so will we. The road marked with Christian persecution does not end in your failure. It ends in glory. Hallelujah. <laughs> in closing, let me just say that our joyride as Christians in this country may be coming to an end. It's all right. It's an honor to suffer for the name of Jesus. No greater privilege exists in the world. Every year it seems that we're being faced with more and more opposition and I hate to be the bearer of bad news but it's only going to get worse it's a sign of the times and I pray that these truths today strengthen us I hope that they help us to boldly and gladly face any persecution that might come our way for the name of Jesus there's no greater honor in the words of the great theologian Taylor Swift, haters are going to hate, 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 right? But I would say this, 
if God be for us. Let them hate because who can ultimately stand against us? Amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, or if you have questions about our church, you can email us at info at myrealchurch.org. Real Life Community Church is located at 335 Glendon Avenue in Richmond, Kentucky. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday at 1045 a.m. or Wednesday at 7 p.m. Visit us online at myrealchurch.org.